0: You to know that I am truly thankful. The Bible, though, as we turn to this text, the Bible is an amazing collection of stories authored ultimately by God, told through humanity. These are stories that are powerful, they're captivating and engaging. We live in a world, though, that is also full of stories. These stories are those that come to distract us away, and they turn our attention to culture and away from the things of God. The church has historically struggled with this. It's like why it's not uncommon now to see pastors who preach from the pulpit messages about health and wealth or how to live our best lives now, despite the truths of God's word. The Gospel, though, is a call into God's story. It's a story of true and righteous king and his defeat against Satan and a very real, very evil empire. The Gospel is a rally call. It is an invitation to take on the righteousness and purity, knowing the reality that this empire of falsehood still exists. It comes to continually distort distort this truth, distracting us away from the call and purposes of God. But Christians have, for over a thousand years, sought to present this truth in a unified way. We see this expressed in what we call the Christian year. It's, It's essentially described in five seasons. There's Advent, there's Epiphany, there's Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. Advent is the the season that that we begin next Sunday, but I wanted to take this opportunity as we prepare for Advent to introduce why we celebrate this within the life of the church. Advent is a time in which we recognize that all that had been hoped and longed for is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus comes in complete humility, ultimately seeking to fulfill the purposes of God to seek and to save the lost. This season of Advent is something that we embrace not of simple routine or out of ritual, but because in the rhythm of life, we want to embrace wholeheartedly God's great story, turning us away from the false stories of consumerism and greed and pointing us to the light of life in Christ. John's gospel, which is this fourth gospel, leads us into the story of Jesus John's Gospels tells us that the story of Jesus, though, it is about Jesus' origin, about his ministry, humanity, about his death on Calvary's cross, and the resurrection from the grave. John writes to engender us in faith, shaping his witness of Jesus to the needs of his readers. Though John's writing is simple, we see that it is also considered intricate and complex. John's gospel is best understood in two parts. We have uh, verses, chapters 1 through 12, which is described as the book of signs, and then John 13 through 20, which we describe as the book of passion. John, like the other gospels, is written without the name of the author included, but it is clear that by the time the gospel began to circulate in among the early church, that it had already been ascribed to the apostle John. This is the among the early church fathers like Polycock who conversed with John, confirming the miracles and teaching of Jesus as eyewitnesses to the Word of life. <clears throat> there is also internal evidence within the book of John like being described as an apostle of Jesus or being listed among the twelve disciples, also being described as John the son of Zebedee. John writes this gospel to, divine, to define the fulfillment of the promised Messiah in the person and work of Jesus, and also to show that in Jesus there is eternal life. Let me ask you, though, to turn to your neighbor and ask them, Did you know that Jesus came to save the world? Did you know that Jesus <laughs> came to save the world? Did you know that Jesus came to save the world? Is the topic that I'm going to come from today. Today's text comes as a contrast of two parts. Verses 37 through 43 is John straight up preaching. But John, verse 44 through 50, is a proclamation that comes directly from Jesus and his commitment to save the world. The cross is a definitive movement that changed the world. It is the revelation of both grace and truth and judgment that comes in the reality of the defeat of the empire. The text we're looking at today comes at the end of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and offers the free gift of grace through the saving faith and reconciliation of God our Creator. Jesus' work on the cross is the final and complete message to the world, yet with sorrow, I believe John writes verse 37, John is writing about people who have been eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus, yet offered their rejection. John presents the signs throughout his gospel as the means by which those who are lost would find saving grace in Jesus, yet it's clear that John didn't see at this point that that goal had been achieved. John wanted the people to know Jesus, to love and enjoy Jesus, and to seek to make Jesus known. But the reality is, even though there were all and wonder that was often expressed, it didn't always translate to relationship with Jesus. How, how did they miss it? How do you live in the very presence of God, come to earth in the likeness of humanity, and miss who he is? They were people who saw Jesus raise the dead. They saw him heal sick. They only offered their rejection. John believes that Jesus is alive and that he is real and that he alone can change your life. John opens with an introductory point that we call the prologue. And then a short story about his relationship with john the baptist before a series of stories in chapters 2 through 10 that reveal the various signs of jesus's messianic fulfillment these stories now point to growing controversy over jesus that reaches a boiling point in raising lazarus from the dead so john's prologue which is a poem it is chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 it is written draw a clear connection to the story of Genesis. Jesus is described as the word, the very word in which the world was created. That is, the world in which you and I live. Words, though, are distinct from the person themselves, but, but those words are also reflective of their embodiment and to who and what they are. And for Jesus to be the word is to establish Equality both with God, but also with his distinct personhood. So Jesus is also described here in light of the story of the book of Exodus and the revelation of the tabernacle. You see, no longer is there a need for the sacrifice of animals because Jesus is the true Lamb of God. The revelation of God's glory revealed, the revelation is the reality that there is one God who is both equally God the Father and God the Son, who has come to earth in the likeness of humanity to save the world. John the Baptist is the witness of Jesus, who leads others to Jesus. In this first chapter alone, though, John uses seven different titles for Jesus. They describe both Jesus' full divinity as well as the manifestation of his, his humanity. Jesus is called the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah and Rabbi. So if we would put those titles together, it, it would describe Jesus something like this. Jesus would be uh, the fully human Jesus of Nazareth, the Messianic King and Teacher of Israel who By the very grace of God came to die to save the world. Chapters two through 10, John writes, as signs that bring truth to the names of Jesus. They follow a very simple structure for each one of those. Jesus performs a sign. There's a choice that is made to follow Jesus or reject Jesus, but time after time again, there is only rejection. So in chapters 2 through 4, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of four Jewish traditions. The first is Jesus at a wedding when he turns water into wine, reflecting Jesus' great generosity. Jesus goes on to tell the temple that they describe Jesus as being indignant. Because the place that was intended for the things of God had been turned into a center of commerce. Jesus tells them that to destroy the temple and in three days, it would be raised again. But while they would only think of the physical, temporal, uh, temple in which they worship, they were too blind to recognize that Jesus was referring to the temple, which was himself. In Jesus, the reality of the heavenly and the earthly meets as Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple's purpose. The third, though, is a conversation between Jesus and a rabbi named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a rabbi, he is a teacher of the word, but the dude is still completely lost. While he saw Jesus as just another great teacher, Jesus comes to confront his ideas with a very real truth. That Jesus comes to give us new life. The fourth, though, is a story of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, where we see she comes to the well to find natural water, but Jesus claims that he is a water of eternal life. Then there's John chapters 5 and 10, which uses signs to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of sacred feasts of Israel. When Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, he is questioned by the Pharisees because Jesus teaches his equality with God, and at that point, the decision is made that Jesus has still got to go. The Passover was a time in which they celebrated the story of the exodus and Jesus is in the middle of a crowd noticing that there is no food and Jesus supernaturally provides to feed 5,000 people. Why? Because Jesus is the true bread of life. The Feast of Tabernacles was a reflection of God's deliverance from the wandering of the people in the wilderness, but Jesus stands in the crowd as they celebrate it and says, I am the true light. Jesus is both the illuminating presence of God in the world as well as the very source of God's life-saving grace. The last is believed to have been taken place during Hanukkah, a time in which The temple was to be rededicated, but Jesus is revealed as affirming his divinity along with God the Father. The raising of Lazarus, I said, though, is is a breaking point because Jesus Jesus has to make a decision at this point. The the great part about the story of Lazarus is the point in which Jesus is told, Hey, your friend Lazarus is sick. How does Jesus respond? He doesn't respond out of fear. He doesn't respond out of, out of, of dread, of loss. In fact, the text says that he said it was good. Because he saw that in the death of Lazarus, God would be glorified. So Jesus makes the decision, while he was outside of the city, away from those who seek to have him killed, but he made the decision to return. This would only echo what was to come in Jesus choosing to sacrifice himself to raise Lazarus from the dead so that others would live. I mentioned though in verse 37 that I believe John writes it in sorrow. This has to be the deepest, the darkest point of the entire gospel. I know you're probably wondering how this then relates to Advent or Christmas, or anything but but I just want to remind you of something that happens in Luke two, verse thirty four and thirty-five. It's a text that reads this It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Jesus is about six weeks old, about 40 days technically. He goes into the temple where they go to to dedicate the baby as the firstborn. And there's a godly man named Simeon who's there and before he dies, he has one request of God. He said, just simply let me see my Messiah before I go. And so this interaction is the interaction between between Jesus himself with Simeon and Mary and Joseph. You see, the reality is in this Christmas story, and we tend to think of it merely as being lights and glamour and all these good things, but the reality of the truth of Christ's birth is that he came to die on Calvary's cross. All of life, if we're honest with ourselves, is not easy and beautiful. It's like parenting. I talked about how gracious God is in giving us, in giving me two wonderful kids but parenting is by far the hardest task that we have in this world. When we think about the realities of, 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 of having to provide but yet still giving the time and the attention that our kids need but we don't regret that work at all do we? In fact, it is in those moments that we are reminded of the great hope that God has given us as we see them grow and mature in the faith and become ambassadors of the gospel in this world as well. Jesus turns our sadness to gladness. John points us back to the book of Isaiah in um, chapter 53 and verse 1. It's a text I preached twice, so I hope we at least know a little something about it. (laughs) John's mentioning of the text here tells us a couple of things. First, that Isaiah was right. His prophecy from 700 years prior is ultimately true. John's prophecy as among the Old Testament and the time of the life and ministry of Jesus had already been established as spiritual authority. John describes the people here As being so culpable that they did not see that God Himself dwelled with them. Though they had seen miracles and signs that should lead them to faith, providing abundance of evidence of Jesus' divinity and Messiahship, they rejected it. John begins verse 39 with an adverb, therefore. Now I told you I'm an old English teacher, so I can't help but working on the grammar. So if you were in Mr. Hooper's eighth grade class, we would know that we would use an adverb to show a cause and effect relationship, right? So we have, because of A, B, and C, there would also be D, and F. And the text, though, that applies because of verses 37 and 38, there is verses 39 and 40. So get this, so the blindness that they experience is not of their own doing. In fact, John reveals, that it is God himself who orchestrates their blindness. This isn't the first time we've seen this type of hard-heartedness in Scripture though, isn't it? We can look back in the story of the Exodus God tells Moses, hey, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go but you can tell him this I want you to go and tell him this but because of his hard heart he's not going to do it. God is sovereignly selective. God makes choices. God chooses Abraham. Abraham has two sons, but God chooses one and not the other. Both, though, are equally Abraham's sons. Isaac has two sons, and God says, even before either of these boys are born, that he chooses to favor one, but he hates the other. These are the fundamentals of understanding what it is that we call unconditional election. John is calling us to see the magnanimity of God's sovereignty. God loves you with a grace-filled saving love despite your sin and be assured of God's great love for you. Verses 42-43 to reads, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I know I'm supposed to be here to preach to you today, but if you don't mind, can I preach to myself for you? You see, as I read these verses, I had to look at myself in the mirror. I had to face the reality that these dudes are not the only ones who suffer from this. See, for me, there is this constant battle within me. It's this battle, the want and the desire to live a faithful Christian life, but I'm Jonah, I still want to be cool. Not only do I want to be cool, I want you to think I'm cool too. That's exactly what's happening in the text. Look, though, at why they felt like this. John says that they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. But why did they not want to get kicked out of the synagogue? He says, because they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. I always get asked the question of how to pray for me. Can I confess... This is it. I want to be so well-liked. I want to be so well-loved. I want to be patted on the back. I want to be considered a gifted preacher. I want everybody to think I'm cool. I don't want anybody to think my haircut coat is weird. <laughs> the reality is, my greatest idol is right here in the Word. My wife is sitting in the back saying, yes, she preach, a preach. The reality is that they turn the place for the things of God into the place where they receive self-gratification. Notice the hope, though, that we find in verses 44 through 50. John is writing here that Jesus' statement as a summary of all that we have seen in the chapters up to this point. His reference though is for unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus is unbelief in God the Father, he says. That that we can't live lives shaped by the mercy and grace of God through the gospel and not be considered children of God. And I'm sure you and I know exactly how this is happening today in the culture. We see people divorce the truth of God's word with I just want to feel God's love. I, I I don't I don't care about you know exactly how things work out. But God is love, and I want Him to love me, and and He He's not going to condemn me because God loves me. The reality is that failure to believe is ultimately a failure to see His glory. I, like many of you, grew up in church and heard the Bible preached week after week, but it was not until I understood the glory that is found in the grace afforded to me on the cross that any of this became real to me. It was a faith that was not built on my mama's faith or my daddy's faith or my grandparents' faith. It was the reality that God died on the cross for my sin. Only then did Jesus become the delight of my life. I asked you earlier, though, if you knew that Jesus came to save the world. John 3, 17 through 18 says, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus doesn't come to condemn the world because the reality is, outside of the grace of Jesus, you're already condemned. Notice in verse 50, though, Jesus teaches that for those who do not believe, the result is that you will not have eternal life. As I close, though, I know some of you are thinking that We were supposed to see some hope in this text. And let me tell you, anywhere there's Jesus, there's always hope. Jesus comes to speak a commandment, a commandment that he says comes from God the Father himself. That commandment is the commandment of eternal life. The gospel is the gospel of God. The Apostle Paul calls it the gospel of God because it comes from God. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes to us by the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. It is communicated through those who proclaim God's word. It comes through the scriptures. It brings us eternal life. So let me ask you today.